Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Elena and Ted Spraker are Alaskans. Elena is essentially the right-hand woman, chief of staff of Senator Dan Sullivan out of the state of Alaska. And she recently heard Cody and Cody, yes, I wasn't there to correct them, are talking about the Kenai rule on one of our roundups. And Senator Sullivan heard the podcast. Elena heard the podcast. and like, mm, these guys made a bit of a goulash out of what is actually going on in the Kenai rule. And so they wanted to have an opportunity to clear the water, essentially, get rid of all the muddiness. And so that's what this conversation is about. This conversation is about the Kenai rule in Alaska and all of the intricacies and complexities tied to the rule. It's a fascinating conversation. Really, really is. And I, I sort of sat myself as the unknowingly dummy to not understanding everything at play, which is probably where you're going to be. So sit back, enjoy, and learn a lot about this situation. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my, is... My, does my hair look okay? My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter.
You still get along. Thirty years. Well, I'm I'm an, I'm I'm nearly halfway there. I'm fourteen years in. So fourteen. Good. Uh, yeah, you'll you'll make it. <laughs> just remember. Oh yeah, no doubt. Whatever she says, you just tell her that she's right, and I could be wrong, and you'll you'll do well. <laughs> yeah, the advice I got from on, on the on my wedding day was. My job was to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, three bags full, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like solid advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, it, it's funny when, I, when we do podcasts like this because, you know, what I pride myself in from a Blood Origins perspective is this, is that we are always, always willing to be corrected. <laughs> and even when I do a video and I'm like putting together the video and I'm editing it and I realize that I said something wrong in the video, I will write a post-production correction on the bottom of it to say, hey, it wasn't 48, it was actually 28. <laughs> and so we got a, I actually got a, um, I was on a phone call with Ben Cassidy and Ben Cassidy was like, Hey, what did, did you talk about the Kenai rule last night on like on the roundup or something? He, cause he didn't know what, what, he, what you, you were obviously referring to. And I said, yeah, I think, you know, it was a roundup that I wasn't on. So I'm going to use the cover that I wasn't there to, to make sure everything was right. But Cody and Cody got onto the Kenai rule. Yeah. And, and they make. And he was like, "Well, they made goulash out of it. <laughs> <laughs> they made regulation goulash out of it. They took the MPS rule, the Kenai rule, and federal subsistence, and they went like this." And I went, "Ben, <laughs> we got to get him the correct." Well, <laughs> uh, to you know, it's to to almost play devil's advocate. It probably sounds like goulash to everyone else yes. outside of Alaska yes. in terms of like. What the heck is going on here with all the different bits and bobs and different rules? And is it state run? Is it federal run? You know, what, what takes precedence over another rule? Anyway, yeah. Cody and Cody well, talked about it. You know what your biggest obstacle tonight is going to be? Is don't What's let that? us go deep into uh, that. You know, you're going to have to kind of pull us back out because this can be complicated. Too, it's very, very complicated. complicated. And um, so that's one thing going into this that Ted and I have talked about. We've got to keep it simple or you're, you're listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm naive to it, right? I, am, I have scratched the surface, so I know enough to be dangerous. Not as dangerous as Cody was. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. so, yeah, I got this. I got the, you know, Ben Cassie was like, hey, uh, these guys want to speak to you because they want to to clear some some things up, I was like, "Hell, man, that's perfect. Let's bring them on the podcast. Let's talk about it. Let's clear up uh, the misinformation and give people almost like the facts, right? Let's just give them like this is this is what's happening, just like we do with the Colorado Wolf Management Plan, just like we did with the Grizzly uh, Management Plan in the state of Montana. Hey, what's going on? So, do you, Elena? Yes, Ted. My next breaker. Yes. We, you know, it'd probably be good to do a little background with us. Like, who the hell are these people? You know? <laughs> Why? Do you oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was just about to do it. I was just going to say, Elena and Ted Spraker, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Uh, should I ask each of you to introduce the other one, or 
why don't you just decide how you want to introduce yourselves? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to be polite. So, Ted, you're older, so you go first. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, first off, it's really great to be with you this evening. This should be interesting and hopefully informative. I have lived in Alaska for about 50 years. Uh, I was a wildlife biologist for the Department of Fish and Game for right at 30 years. And soon after retiring from the Department of Fish and Game, I was asked to be on the Alaska Board of Game. That's seven individuals that set seasons and bag limits throughout the state for hunting and trapping. Nothing to do with... Is that almost like the commission for the department? Uh, no, not really. They call them commissioners in other states, but in Alaska, they call us board members. Yeah, so the same thing. It's, an, it's analogous. Yes, yes, as commissioners yes, in other states. So I did that for 18 years. I've been uh, you know, involved in wildlife conservation for many, many years now. Uh, and as soon as I stepped down from the board, I decided to get more involved in the Safari Club International. And I was elected president my first time around. I've been a charter member of the club for about 30 years, but just kind of on the periphery. And then now I'm more involved and been the president for the last couple of years and glad to be with you today. Outstanding. Yep. Thank you, Ted. So about 30 years ago, Ted and I attended a uh, SCI dinner. It's probably a little bit longer ago than that. And that was the very first time we met. And um, then we, I got involved with hunting. I've lived up here almost all my life. My parents were avid hunters. Um, and we lived off of wild foods. We always have. So when I married Ted, uh, we be I became very, very involved in the politics of it, you will, because I realized the things that you love, you have to get down in that to that tar pit if you want to save them. And sometimes it got icky. So my first debut, if you will, I was head of a chairman of a coalition uh, with hunters, trappers, fishermen that we were trying to stop the federal subsistence priority, federal management from coming on the Kenai. So that was the beginning. And then as it progressed, I became more and more involved in wildlife management and uh, issues. And then present day, about eight years ago, I met this gentleman named Dan Sullivan, who became our U.S. Senator. And then he hired me for my expertise in uh, federal overreach issues. So here we are. And you still work for Senator Sullivan today? I do. Yes, I do. So that was now that that's okay. Now a little bit of confusion has cleaned up because that's what Ben told me. He's like, Senator Sullivan heard about your podcast and wants to set the record straight. I was like, dang, a freaking senator's watching and listening to Blood Origins. Okay, cool. Um, well, how, and then, yeah, how about his like his right hand federal over? Oh. Uh, woman. Actually, it's probably it's probably better to have you on because yeah. you know there'll be less political stumping than uh, yeah. a, you know a senator. I had the um, member of the House of Commons, Blaine Calkins, on that was talking about C twenty one, the Canadian gun ban bill, and 
at every junction, he, he did get a little bit so boxy, you know, from a conservative Republican political standpoint. So, which we enjoy. Um, yeah, I enjoy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so let's um, I I'm I'm gonna pretend to just be dumb. Okay, I don't want to assume anything because I think that's the best way to move this conversation and to sort of squirrel people along. Okay, let's set the scene. Okay, what? is going on right now that is causing such a kerfuffle in the Kenai? Well, here's the best way to answer that. We have kind of a timeline. So we can start people from the beginning and we're okay. covering you current. So let's work a little bit okay. back, you know, back okay. here. Here, I'm going to do the timeline. Ted's going to put the guts into it, put the historical content into it. And then the two things, three things, excuse me, in the end, we're going to talk about that is absolutely devastating by these three panel Ninth Circuit judges that I swear to God, Robbie, they took a 55 gallon barrel, burned Anelka, burned the Statehood Compact Act. <laughs> And did this revisionist theory of how wildlife should be managed in Alaska. So, and those judges were in Alaska. No, 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 no. They're nice San, San Francisco because, by God, those San yeah. Francisco judges know so so much about Alaska and bear baiting and these harvest mm -hmm. practices, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, to, to just to bring this along, here's the timeline. In 2012, the board again met, and they expanded harvest methods with the National Park Service and I in the preserves. And I have to talk about that because the National Park Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife in the Kenai, they all, they all come together, okay? So it's- They work well together. Do National Park Service and Fish and Wildlife Service work well together? Oh, they do. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, so in, 2000, um, in 2012, Board of Game meeting, the board expanded harvest methods, some traditional harvest methods, and Ted will talk about that in a minute. Ted, you're on the board at this time? Yes. You're, you were a part of making that decision in 2012? Yep. Yes, I was. He was chairman. Okay. Okay. So then from there, in 2013, the board again met down here in Kenai, and Ted will talk about that as well, and expanded harvest methods, bear baiting, because the population had grown so much to um, – harvestable surplus and so they expanded harvest methods in the 213 in 215 okay the parks hold on just just so let me i'm gonna i'm gonna pick a little bit because i think people are going to be thinking about this the same at the same time baiting was not allowed prior to 2013 for brown bears for brown bears it's been allowed for black bears forever except for maybe a year or two in the mid 80s and other than that, it's always been available for black bears, but after 213, it was available for brown bears. In the Kenai specifically or everywhere? It, the Kenai to begin with, and then it was expanded across the state so that now it's pretty much across the state. Was any other additional harvest methods allowed in 2013? Elena, you mentioned that there was. Was, was this when it... Uh, Wolf pups in the dens and, and bears in the dens were allowed to be taken in 2013? Yes. And the Kenai meeting uh, focused in on what's called Ski Lack Loop Recreational Area, where the board 
uh, authorized uh, coyote hunting and, Lynx and, and lynx and wolf. Okay, and Ted's going to talk about that in a minute. I'm just trying to give it to okay. He's going to put the okay. to that. Okay. okay. So in 215, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Park Service and the Kenai Refuge. Now keep in mind, the Kenai Refuge and Anwar, which is the Arctic Refuge, those are the crown jewels. Those are the refuges that are the money makers. So they're very protective over those. They all got together and... Those are tourism money makers. They are. Yes, they are. Okay. Okay. So they so the agencies got together and uh, pr uh, proposed these regulations that eliminated these harvest methods. Okay. Uh, dinning, flashlight dinning in in bears, bear baiting, and the Kenai. They they really went full tilt. They eliminated campsites on the Kenai River. Uh, uh, discharge honey, of honey along the river. yeah, hunting along the river. Discharge of firearms. They kind of went full tilt, which was illegal because if you read Anelka, they violated Anelka. Now you got to stop there because people are going to go, "What is Anelka?" 1980, Alaska National uh uh interest lands conservation act okay some people feel it was the biggest land grab in america's history millions and millions of acres into park preserves refuges blm forest service okay but in that piece of legislation in 1980 there were saving clauses that protected us that allowed us to access federal public lands and protect our alaska way of life and i can talk about that later but i just wanted to do that. So from there, these proposed rules, they went, the National Park Service rules came out, the Kenai rule came out, and then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife rule, proposed rule came out. So they were all in conjunction with each other to eliminate the state's authority to manage wildlife on federal public lands in all of Alaska. Okay, from there, then they they got litigated. Right. So NPS rule, the National Park Service rule got litigated and our federal district judge remanded it back to the National Park Service without vacateur, meaning that it's not going to vacate the rule. She said, fix it. And they focused in on bear baiting, saying it was a safety issue, which is okay. a bunch of BS. It's not. They don't bear bait. OK, then from there, the Kenai rule went got litigated and that's the most dangerous rule and i'm going to talk about later talk about why it is so concerning and so dangerous what they did like i said they burned congressional intent and, and anelka and the statehood compact that where we're at right now with the kenai rule is that um we're petitioning the state of alaska and uh, alaska provincial hunters safari club are all petitioning to the supreme court um, to be heard, because this is this will wipe out wildlife management with the plenary jurisdiction, um, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, and why that's so. So, since 2015, the in 2015 the big rule got put in place. All these big rules got put in place essentially. Since 2015, there's just been a bunch of litigation. Um, fix it, don't fix it. And now we're almost at like a stalemate kind of scenario, right? So, Robbie, one thing that I had, and this is so important, and I, I forgot this. So those were Obama-era proposed rules. 
Trump comes in. Correct. And reverses the Park Service rule. Okay. And the key. Oh, so then during the Trump era, um, a miracle on Constitutional Avenue happened, which was called the Congressional Review Act, where we got Congress to do a CRA with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and their rules because it came into that 60 day window. And so mm-hmm. it passed. It was a miracle that, that that passed. And I can, you know, I can talk about that later too and, and kind of that whole story and how it happened, but it passed. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife rules, they go away because Congress said, absolutely not. You took state's authority away. Okay. It, the Kenai rule should have been included in that. And in this Ninth Circuit decision, it was mind blowing that they had the audacity to say that the Kenai Refuge was not part of the Alaska Refuge System. Yeah, it is. Last time I checked, it absolutely was. So they separated that out and said that the 217 CRA did not apply to that. Now Biden comes in and we're starting these reversals, you know, again, but under the Trump era, like the National Park Service rules, as those got reversed, the Kenai rule was ready to get reversed. The language was there, and one of the bureaucrats reversed the language as it was going into the recording room back to the Obama era language, and it died because Biden came in and we were done. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's why we're in litigation right now. So it did not get reversed. Okay. Yeesh. Okay. I know. Have I lost you yet? <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the specifics on the keen eye rule, Ted, because I think that's where everyone sort of is, is, it gets a little wrapped up, right? So it seems like there's three big things and maybe you can give us a little bit of context because you were there making the decisions as the chairman of the bog back in the day. And the three things that keep coming up is bear baiting, cubs, wolf cubs in the dens, and bear cubs and sows being able to take and be taken out of their hibernating dens. Okay. Well, well, let me go from the third one and I'll go backwards on them. So let's talk yes, about uh, bears in dens and taking up cubs. In about so let me, before you say anything, I think 99% of hunters would go, oh my God, that's atrocious. And I agree. Agree? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Taking sows with cubs or taking cubs is not something that, that hunters would do. And I can explain why this was allowed, and it's allowed in a very, very limited situation. In about 2012... We had several elders, these are older native individuals from a community. They were from Huslia, which is in the lower you know, Yukon part. And they came to the board and they asked if they could use some sort of artificial light when they try to get a black bear out of a den. Now, keep in mind, it's legal to kill a black bear or brown bear in a den as long as the season's open. In a lot of our seasons in Alaska, black bear, for instance, are open year round. Most places don't even have a closure, uh, bag limit somewhere, some are three, there's a couple places that's one. Some places in Alaska, you can kill five. 
black bears. Brown bears okay. usually one or two brown bears per year. So you can kill a bear in a den. The reason the elders were concerned is that I'm sure someone told them that they shouldn't be using artificial light to shine down a den to see if there's a black bear in the den. So they came to us with a safety concern and also not wanting to get prosecuted for using an artificial light. And what they said is that we use an artificial light, we use a flashlight to see if it's a brown bear. Now, my first thought was, you don't have to worry. If it's a brown bear, he will let you know because he'll be coming out of that den after you if it's a brown bear. Mm -hmm. But if it's a black bear, um, and I've gone into a lot of black bear dens when I worked for the department. We used to change collars on black bears in the den. We'd crawl in there and dart them and get them out. Black bears are, are pretty shy, so you can look in a den and you can see them. So what they said was, there's a couple things we're concerned about. One, the brown bear. Number two is to make sure the sow, if it's a sow, that it doesn't have cubs. We're concerned about killing cubs, sows with cubs. The other thing we're concerned about is trying to make an ethical shot, that we don't want to just shoot down this den. We want to make sure we can make an ethical, clean shot. Well, the board dealt with this and basically struggled with this because we knew there may be some pushback on this one. Finally, and I don't recall the vote, it probably wasn't unanimous, but anyway, we voted to allow it. And then the question came up from the Department of Fish and Game is what if they accidentally kill a sow that has cubs? So the board took another look at it and said, only Under this circumstance, we will accept a mistake by some native folks that are shooting these bears in a den if they accidentally kill uh, a sow with a cub, report it, and we're not going to, you know, prosecute that person. So that's where that came from. But let me let me make this really clear. There, there's people in the National Park Service and others really concerned about a flashlight. Okay. As I mentioned before, you can take a bear in a den. You can throw a smoke bomb in the den. You can throw a firecracker in the den. All those things are legal. No one concentrated on that. They only concentrated on the use of a flashlight in a den. So that has always been puzzling to me. And the other thing that the elder said, and this is a very important point I should have said first, it's rarely practiced. This isn't something mm. they do often. You know, occasionally mm. they'll find where bears in a den and they'll try to dig the bear out. But it's, they're hard to find. I can tell you that from experience. They're hard to find. Bears do a pretty good job of hiding these dens. They go into thick cover when they dig dens out. And uh, they're hard to find, so it's not done very often. So that's kind of... Ted, was this only for... Uh, indigenous people of Alaska, the the tribal people, or was anybody could then, once you made this rule with the flashlight, anybody could use flashlights? couple points. Anyone in the state can do it. However, it's limited to only portions of four of the 26 game management units we have in the state. And I've never heard of anybody doing it 
other than right around Huslio. It's kind of customary and traditional for them. It's not for other, you know, indigenous people in the state. In fact, a lot of indigenous people don't eat bears at all. They have a kind of a, you know, a ill feeling towards eating bears. Women can't eat okay. bears. They don't even talk about bears. They call it the big animal. They don't call it. A bear. Mm. So a lot of superstitions mm. around bears in Alaska, except around Huslia, they do utilize black bears. Okay. So the, in the sort of the, the, just, just to talk through that, that, that brown bear, uh, brown bear, the, the, denning bears and and sows and cubs in the in the den itself is it just so today the talk about it today is it still tied to that flashlight yes the use of a flashlight that that is the key point that i think is in question right now is using the flashlight you know keep in mind they used a torch for ten thousand years before the flashlight Mm -hmm. so so you so you may, just to clarify a couple of uh, one or two points. Number one, it is it is legal, yes, for anyone in the state of Alaska to take a black bear out of a den or a brown bear, yes, or a brown bear. But it is illegal. I think I heard you didn't say this, but I'm going to make an assumption. It is illegal to take a sow. A black bear sow or brown bear sow, but let's just say black bears for now, with cubs out of its den. It's not illegal to kill a sow black bear with a cub in these areas, these portions of four game management is the only place in the state where you can kill a black bear sow that has a cub. Only place. What about outside those four areas? Can't do it. No, nope. you could take illegal. You could take a bear out of a den. You could shoot a bear that was in a den. You cannot shoot one that has a cub. If you do, you get prosecuted on that one. Okay, I'm going to run down a rabbit hole quickly. Okay. Do you remember a video? Because I remember it was like the first thing that I like got wrangled in. Three and a half years ago, maybe four years ago at this point, two white pe- two white gentlemen on skis. There was a camera, a game camera looking at a black bear den, and they pulled the mother and the cubs out. They were prosecuted for poaching. As they should be. Okay. I just wanted to make clear that it was a it was it was definitely it was they were prosecuted for poaching. It was just, it's funny how you're just what you're saying here is bringing me back to that, that video because it was just like these are hunters and this is what hunters do. And I was like, no, these are not hunters, these are poachers. And again, the board really struggled with that exemption, and, and it was only done because of the customary and traditional practices in this small community, in this small area of the state. And and I would really like to know, and I'm sure your listeners would like to know, how often this happens. I think, right. I think it's one bear every year, maybe one bear every two or three years. I think it's really rare. But it's something that the board listened to. 
We question the elders. And, you know, Alaska has a great deal of respect for our indigenous people. And we have a lot of respect for elders and their knowledge and so forth. And the board took that to heart. You know, we listened carefully. You know, their, their request was genuine. And we didn't get caught up in any emotion on, well, what is someone else going to think about this? We looked at just the facts. Mm-hmm. That it's done. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, I think that... Um... I think you, you you sort of clarified exactly that that issue about you say it's probably rare for them to do it to take a bear out it's probably even rarer if I'm not going to say it doesn't happen but it's probably even rarer that it happens and their cubs and if they can use the light they might see the cub and avoid it altogether mm-hmm. that was part of their request mhm so they are, yeah, okay, I got, good. Let me talk about the 2013 brown bear issue for baiting brown bears or taking a brown bear on the Kenai. That is the okay. one that has really lit up the Fish and Wildlife Service. So a couple points that need to be made. The Fish and Wildlife Service has allowed the taking of black bears over bait for I don't know, 30 years along, longer on the Kenai. It's been in place. They require you to take an orientation program. They have one square mile blocks where you can set up a bait station. You can have two in one square mile block. It represents 1.5% of the entire refuge. That's all. So they have designated baiting that certain spot. It's about 50 square miles, and you have to sign up for one of these blocks, take the orientation course, and you can utilize that area for bait. You still have to comply with all of the state regulations. You have to be a quarter mile off a road and all those different things, a mile from any, any residence or any cabin or anything like that. So you still have to do all those things. But here's the interesting thing, and this is, this is quite involved, but I think it's worth listening to. In 2010, the refuge took a look at the state's estimate of brown bears on the Kenai Peninsula. And that brown bear estimate was not some scientifically based estimate, it was just a guess. And I'll admit that. And we said there's about 250 to 300 brown bears on the Kenai. Well, as things moved along through the 80s and 90s, and I worked for Fishing Game all that time, the brown bear population was clearly increasing. In fact, one year we had 42 defense of life property kills, 42. At the same time, because of this population of up to 300 bears, the harvest, the allowable harvest was 14 bears a year. Well, the public was really upset about this. They thought there was far more bears. The refuge spent three quarters of a million dollars doing a study, and I'm I'm sure that their objective was to prove that there's between 250 and 300 bears and keep it at a harvest of 14 annually. Okay, so go back to 
2010. They did the study in 2010. Took them about a year to get it all completed and all the analysis done. And then we didn't hear a word. And I asked several times, you know, what's the results? What's your estimate? Nothing. For over a year. And keep in mind, at this time, I was the chairman of the Board of Game of Alaska. And I'd worked for Fishing Game. And I knew all the guys involved in it because I'd worked with them on the Fishing Game side and Federal side. They would not divulge the results. Well, this was the Fish and Game of Alaska. This is the state government no. entity, or no, this is U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Fish and Wildlife Service. Kenai. Yes, sir. Okay, so in 2013, we had a board meeting, as Elena said, here on the Kenai, talking about local issues. And at that board meeting, they finally presented the results. And the results were that they counted. Well, first off, it was 624 bears was the estimate. And then they paired it back by taking out every little pond, little creek, every little bit of water. Anyway, they wound up with 586 bears. Okay, here's another point that keeps getting lost. This was done in 2010. Their research plus fishing game showed that this bear population was increasing at 3% per year. Okay, that 3% was never added on. So in 2013, they published 586. Well, you can imagine the department and the, the board was pretty upset about this. So we went from a very limited draw hunt, 14 bears limit can be taken, to a season that started September 1 and ended May 31. But we, we went a step further. We set a quota on the number of bears that could be taken. And this was a scientific assessment. We said, we're not gonna allow over 70 bears to be taken. Well, guess what? The first year, the hunters took about 70 bears. And the defense of life and property kills in town, all the nuisance bear problems in town. You know, we'd have two or three bear attacks a year on the Kenai. We've had several maulings of fatalities on the Kenai. You know, all mm -hmm. those pretty much went away because hunters killed a lot of these nuisance bears that were hanging around town. So that's what happened in 2013. And then the board came back a year or so later and said, okay, this is working great, but we're going to set some more standards. We're going to go with a quota of 50 to 60 bears annually all known mortality. So if it's taken by a hunter, it's hit by a truck on the highway, it all gets... Yep, yep, yep. But we also added in that 8 to 12 adult females being taken, because that's really the way you manage brown bears is the amount of the number of adult females taken. So anyway, yep. if we put those two conditions on, and that's where it is right now. So getting back to the baiting part, it doesn't make any difference whether these bears on the Kenai are taken on the refuge or off the refuge. It's all one population. But here's the important point. The refuge does not want to allow brown bears to be taken at a black bear bait station like the state does. Because now people are moving off the refuge. I mean, why would you put a bait station and all the effort on the refuge where you can't take a brown bear? 
when you can move on to state land or private land or something other than federal land. And then there you can take a brown bear. So I think it was something that they really had in the back of their mind that this is really a good way to get rid of a lot of bear hunters on the Kenai. And it has. There used to be a... So this is, hold on. So, so this is baiting outside of the refuge. Okay, there's a small area where you can bait on the refuge. Correct, the square miles component, the 1.5% that you said. But you also said that you cannot take brown bears on those bait sites. Correct, on the refuge. Okay, for instance, I used to have a bait station on the refuge. When it became legal to take a brown bear at a bait station, then I moved off the refuge, and so did a lot of most of over other hunters. Ah, uh, okay, moved I see off what you're the refuge so that they had an opportunity to take a brown bear. Because I was just overrun with brown bears on my bait station on the refuge, but I couldn't hunt them. So when baiting was allowed, when baiting was allowed for brown bears, it still was illegal to take a brown bear by baiting on the Kenai Refuge, but off the Kenai Refuge, on state lands or private lands, it was now legal to take a brown bear on bait. Yes, you got it. Because of that rule in 2013. Yes. But it was still tied to the quota. You, you, you... It's all been tied to the quota. And since, Correct. since 2013, the uh, Department of Fish and Game has closed the brown bear hunting one, one time. They closed it last fall because they were getting up close to that uh, 12 adult females. So they closed it in late October, which the season's already, the season's still open, but there's no bears being taken in late October. And there's no baiting in the fall. Baiting is only in the springtime, mm -hmm. April 15 to May 31st in the springtime for so, baiting brown bears. So Robbie, let me just interject here with something else that's really important. In the whole narrative with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Park Service, and even the federal judges, go, okay, bear baiting isn't compatible with federal public lands and park service and U.S. Fish and Wildlife compatibility with, with the refuge and the park service because it, bear baiting will harm the bear population, which is the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard. Ted just explained with the quota protecting the females, you will never harm the the bear population specifically on the Kenai when all the bear baiters have moved off of it. So when I mentioned that one of the federal district judges remanded the bear baiting back to the park service because there was a safety concern, you know, with all due respect, judge, you don't bear bait, you're not a biologist and you got your facts all wrong. Those bear populations will never be in peril. Well, they Yeah. <laughs> But but you just but what Ted alluded to is they were fine with black bear baiting. I know, crazy town, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If they're fine with black bear baiting, and that is quote unquote not imperiling the black the bear population, because let's be honest, it's not like hey, there's a sign here that says you brown bears can't touch this, but black bears you're allowed in here. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let me. And or and the safety issue. Those two arguments are nullified because you are fine with black bear baiting. Yeah. 
Exactly. Let me take it one step further into the craziness. If with the Park Service rules and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Kenai rule, okay, if you're a designated subsistence user, meaning if you have the right zip code, okay, this is all fine. It's all legal. The person in the Nilchik down the road that, and that's a whole nother podcast. 30 miles from here. 30 miles from here <laughs> can get on the refuge and, and bait because they're a subsistence designated community. And they can bait, they can bait for brown bears? They can, they can do. Not brown bears. Not yet. Not. Mm, maybe, maybe, but. Um, I think, no. I, I know up in the park service. They can in preserves. In preserves. They, and that's. Okay. And on all the refuges. So, so let me throw this out there because okay, we just we just established the craziness of things, okay? Here's where I think the rubber's gonna meet the road and Elena's gonna just jump all and start spouting acronyms left, right, and center. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Why does the keen eye rule, which is tied to federal government have any say so on what is happening on state owned land outside the refuge? They don't. Well, it, it shouldn't. They, they don't. But, but one of the things, Robbie, that's really important, and Elena touched on it early on, the Kenai Refuge is kind of the testing grounds for everything in this state. They boast about a million and a half people visit the refuge. Well, okay. I'll tell you. All but maybe a couple hundred of those are coming here to fish the Kenai River and pass through the refuge. They're not okay. they're not excited about seeing the refuge. There's not much to see when you're driving down the Sterling Highway to get to the Kenai River to go fishing. So, but that one and Anwar, those are the two that are really the test cases in Alaska. So whatever they can kind of do here. Snow machining is another good example. On the Kenai, we have all kinds of restrictions on snow machine use. I called and Elena called. We did a, a, a you know, kind of a survey of all the refuges across the state about snow machine use. And they said, what regulations? If you want to drive your snow hmm. machine on the tundra, do it. Here, you got to have a foot of snow. It only opens after December the 1st. And then you have to have a foot of snow everywhere. As anyone knows, you're not going to have even snow depths everywhere in the Kenai Peninsula. So they'll find a place with shallow snow and they'll say, well, there's only six inches of snow here. We can't open the snow machine. So the Kenai is kind of the test case. And, so Bobby, and, let, me, let me expand and, and try to answer your, your question for you. When you look at the Kenai the vast majority is federal public lands. There's only 3% private lands. And um, I don't know, like state lands is, is pretty minimal compared to okay. federal lands. And let me just so that I'm, I'm before, I apologize for cutting you. Nope. But how this, this plays back into Anilka mm -hmm. is that the Kenai Refuge is, could be operated like state lands because of Anilka, right? Well, it, it, when it comes to fish and game management, and Nelka yes. specifically said in section 1314 that nothing in this piece of legislation is going to diminish states' authority to manage wildlife. 
nothing in ANILCA says, if I don't like the harvest methods, that federal managers can do away with them. And that's exactly what they're doing. And they're coming Which is what is the, the, which is the bear baiting in the keen eye rule. Yep. These insane, bogus reasons for getting rid of uh, harvest methods that they find distasteful. If you have the wrong zip code, keep that, you know, in yeah. mind too. Um, the other thing that's so, so important that, that is, is the plenary action that the, the, the uh, Ninth Circuit took. Have you ever heard of the Kleppe case in New Mexico where that no. years ago, the Supreme Court said that the wild burrows and horses were on federal lands and they have plenary power, meaning those animals are on federal land and the land managers, the federal agencies can do whatever they want with them. Well, these Ninth Circuit judges inappropriately uh, applied the plenary rule to Alaska. Our statehood compact, when you read it, you know, you read section 6E, I think it is, that that gave authority to the state to manage fish and game. ANILCA gave authority to fish to the state of Alaska for fish and game with, with respect to t Title Eight. And again, that's a whole nother, that's subsistence. That's a whole nother podcast. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that's that's what everybody's concerned about, and that's why um, they've ramped up these rules because of this court decision in the Ninth Circuit that says, "Yeah, land managers, you can just go do whatever you want," you know. And it's you, you federal land managers, federal go land do whatever you want. Yep. Yep. So, so Ted, there was there was a, a third piece in there that that we skipped over. Um, baiting denning bears, but also wolf pups out of the den. Yeah, there's that. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that all came about. There's there's a couple areas in the state where you can hunt wolves until uh, June the 30th. Now, keep in mind, wolves breed in February. Uh, the pups are born um, probably late April, 1st of May. Most of the seasons go to the end of April, but there's a couple where it goes to the end of May, a couple into June. So in reality, you could kill a wolf that has pups in the den. Here's the reality yeah. of it. Females stay really close to the den. The wolves that venture out and get away from the den are usually, you know, young adults, males, whatever, other members of the pack. So females are pretty careful about staying close to the den. So it's pretty unusual that you're going to catch a female out several miles from a den or whatever. And again, they're very secretive on where they put these dens. Mm -hmm. It's not like we authorize that you can kill wolves and pups in dens, but some of our seasons go beyond the pup pupping period so you know there's a couple things that one of the things i want to talk about real quick i know we're we're kind of getting long here and that's oh no 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 we, we'll we, we're gonna roll okay, because... we're gonna roll we're gonna roll on yeah. because and again i'm i'm not trying to just you know be so uh disparaging to the federal system but the hypocrisy of predator control has always troubled me. 
you know, when I was on the board again, the Fish and Wildlife Service came to the board with a proposal to eliminate rats on one of the Aleutian Islands because they were eating a lot of the shorebirds. I thought it was a great deal. I thought, yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. in favor of that. You know, we don't need these invasive Norwegian rats that have been here for hundreds of years from wrecked ships uh, eating up all these seabirds. So anyway. 100%. Okay. So, yeah, 100%. I was all in favor of it. So we said, okay, uh, what's the collateral damage? Well, first off, the poison they were going to use the first year, the board wouldn't allow them to use it. So they came back the second time with a new recipe for this poison. And we said, okay, you know, our state veterinarian said, well, that's not good, but we can allow that. That's better than the first try. So they came back the second year and they said, well, there's going to be some collateral damage. We may kill a few eagles. And we may kill a few ptarmigan and, you know, gulls and things like that. So anyway, they went out and they hammered these rats. They did a hell of a job, used a couple of helicopters and tons of this poison pellets, dropped them, and they eliminated the rats. They did a great job. So they came back to the board and they said, well, the collateral damage was a little higher than we thought. We probably killed somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 or so bald eagles and maybe a hundred or a couple hundred other birds and things. So anyway, if you look at what's written about it, they're publishing 45 eagles and 250 total birds. So I asked the question, when did you do this assessment? And they said, well, we we couldn't get back to the island for a, a month or so. Well, you know as well as anybody, we've got a tide, big tides that wash in every, you know, six hours it changes tides. So anything that died on the beach got washed out. So a month later, they still had about 250 that died. Okay. I'm not being critical of the program. I supported the program. Here's one that I am critical about. Hagemeister Island. Back in the... Early, I don't know exactly when it was, but reindeer were introduced to Hagemeister probably in the 60s, maybe maybe way back when. The herd built up to about 1,200 reindeer. Fish and Wildlife Service did an assessment, and they said, well, they're really destroying a lot of the habitat. They're probably overstocking their range. And they said, we need to remove these reindeer. And everybody said, well, okay, we can understand that. Let's open it up to hunting. It's about 20 miles from Togiak down at Bristol Bay. So it's fairly close to the mainland. Well, no, we don't want to do that. We're going to capture some of them, and we're going to take them to Palmer. There's an ag station there, and Fairbanks. So they caught about 400 of the 1,200 reindeer. So the next thing was, well, we're going to have to shoot the rest of them. And the state said, this is in 92, the state said, okay, but you're going to salvage all of these. And they said, well, we'll we'll do the best we can. They shot almost 800 reindeer and they salvaged 172. And, And you know that, to me, as a 
as a hunter, as a conservationist, an outdoors guy, you just don't do that. And they, mm-hmm. you know, and, and but if you talk about predator control to increase numbers of moose for human food, and people that really rely on that in Alaska, which a lot of people, including us, I mean, that's all we eat is moose or caribou. Anyway, then predator control is the most you know, despicable thing you can think of unless the Fish and Wildlife Service does it. Then it's okay. And then mm-hmm. they leave, you know, 600 and something animals laying on the ground. And Kogiak, mm-hmm. a small native village out there, they would have loved to have these animals and other villages yeah. around there. I mean, there's quite a few villages out in the western part of Alaska, you know. Yep. So, I mean, these sort of things... The hypocrisy just just drives me nuts over it. Let me give you an example of the state and prairie control. You said we're going to roll here. We're going to roll now. Oh, Ted's on a roll right now. now. I'm going to lean forward on this one, Robbie. (laughs) State, the state authorized prairie control over in kind of the central, more a little more western part of the state along the Kuskokwim River. And the then the public did a pretty good job of removing wolves. But there were so many bears that they could never get the moose population to, to, to increase. It was closed for 16 years. So the department developed a plan. They put it out to the public. And then they took that plan to the board. And the board authorized a plan to remove black and grizzly bears. They did it for two years. Now, here's the big difference. The first year they shot 85 bears. Hunters. Almost all black bears. I think they're all the department. The department did it. The department did it. The next year they shot 65 bears. And there were 10 grizzlies, 55 black bears. I was involved in the project. Here's the difference. They hired a couple people to skin the bears and salvage the meat. As bears were taken, the guy that shot the bear would get out of the helicopter, gut the bear, so it was processed right away in the field. It was brought into a processing. We had a big walk-in cooler. The bears got quartered up, and we took them at 1,000 pounds a load in in a de Havilland beaver and flew them out to different villages. And we had a line of people there waiting to get this meat in the spring because it was the first fresh meat they had in the spring. You know, and that's the way the department did that program. They could have done that on Hagemeister, but it was easier and cheaper to leave it in the field. And then they criticized the hell out of the fishing game for doing predator control. So anyway, I'm going to lean back a little bit now. So, well, not a- <laughs> so you know, it's- sorry, Robbie. Hang on. Yeah, not only that, they created this false narrative in the proposed rules. It says any method that targets predators is not allowed anymore, even if it doesn't reduce or help the prey population. Okay, so you just eliminated trapping. Trapping. That's a harvest method of predators. And there's a lot of trapping on preserves across the state. Lots of it. And it's going to go. So trapping is is wrapped up in the Kenai rule too. Well, it's the it's the Park Service uh, preserve. That's Park Service. Oh, Park Service. The National Park Service rule. Yeah. Yep. That's 
Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to to your point about distribution of meat. A lot of people, you know, me included, but my eyes are slowly being opened. You know, a lot of people think of the whole narrative of hunters feeding people and communities as very much an African thing. Um, but it's very much an indigenous people's thing. And all across Canada, all across Alaska, there's phenomenal stories to be told of things like that, Ted, that, you know, game and fish doing X or hunters providing Y, you know, not being able to take the meat home or whatnot and donating it to people that are in need. So, so Robbie, I think you may, you brought up such an excellent point that we parallel with Africa. You know, Ted and I have been to Africa. And that is the Alaska way of life. We share. Mm -hmm. well, and so mm -hmm. one of the things in the proposed rules is to redefine sport hunting. Yeah. Okay. And that, that we just laugh at because we're designated as sport hunters. The Department of Fish and Game has actually changed the definition from general hunting. Because when you think of sport, you think of this ethical, you know, chase. We don't. We 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 have three freezers full, like most Alaskans do, and we hunt for food sustenance. It's our, you know, traditional. Mm -hmm. It's our diet. And so, mm -hmm. when the Park Service or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife tries to redefine sport hunting, we just laugh at them. Like, mm -hmm. where have you people been? You don't know Alaska or Alaska wildlife. You know, Robbie, one other thing, I wish I could remember the exact figure, but just to be safe, I'll, I'll, I'll go with a low figure. The guiding industry in Alaska brings meat in from their hunters, and they, they give a lot of this meat away at the villages. And I heard a figure at one of their meetings here recently, and I think it's in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million pounds annually is donated to local communities. So, I mean, not only did Fish and Game donate a lot of bears, uh, guides every year donate a lot of meat to local communities. And it's, again, it's hunters sharing with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to get those, I want to get those numbers and data. We love producing infographics that just showcase how good a job hunters are doing for, for communities, you know, all around the world. Love to get that data. Yeah, I'll get it and I'll get it to you. All right. All right, so let's wrap this up and let's put a fine point on where we are right now, Elena. So, um, yeah. go ahead. So, uh, like I mentioned before, the state of Alaska Safari Club, APHA, Alaska Professional Hunters, have basically asking the Supreme Court, which we feel this is a right case because it has national implications, to listen to it. And here's what I will promise you I will promise you if the Supreme Court looks at this case, 99.9% .9 sure they'll overturn the Ninth Circuit like they do most, most of their cases. To close it out, there's three points why the Kenai uh, rule, this legal case is so dangerous. Number one, the plenary uh, jurisdiction that the Ninth Circuit improperly imposed on authority of who manages fish and wildlife in Alaska. Number two, And what does that plenary say? What does it specifically say? Break it down. Be very simplistic. Okay, it says who now manages the game. It says if that game or fish is on federal lands, agencies, you can do whatever you want to do, and that just shreds states' authority. Okay, 
Number one. Number two, the most threads it shreds, shreds Alaska's authority and the the authority under Anilka. Under Anilka, under the Statehood Compact Act, under the Refuge Improvement. I could go on and on, right? All okay, okay, okay. The most mind blowing one, number two, is the two seventeen Congressional Review Act, where Congress, in a bipartisan vote signed by Trump, said no U.S. Fish and Wildlife, you cannot propose these regulations and eliminate harvest methods because you find them distasteful. You cannot do that. But the Ninth Circuit said, Kenai, you're different. But last time we looked, Kenai was part of the refuge system Okay, in Alaska. That was just mind blowing. And they really, to me, slapped Congress right in the face. Uh, Senator Sullivan is the one that led the charge on that uh, 217 CRA. And it was a miracle that happened because we had every anti-hunting environmentalist group doing the narrative, oh, they're, you know, putting garbage with bear baiting and they're shooting the poor pups in the dens, you know, all these false narratives. So it was an absolute miracle that got done. And the Ninth Circuit just dismissed it. Um, and then, you know, number number three, which is, you know, which is so absolutely so dangerous with this is that you know if we allow this if it stays at the ninth circuit you know again then the federal agencies can just do you know whatever they want to do so just to um clarify one point because maybe i, I mis misread this when you said that the the ninth circuit's plenary has made Kenai almost the set-apart refuge, do what you want. Are the other refuges in Alaska still being run from a state management perspective? No. Well, yes. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, they are because of the 217 CRA. Okay? They just have this, this plenary under the Ninth Circuit has just sort of carved out Kenai and said, you're different. You're different. You can do what you want. But, you know, yeah. right there, Robbie, I was looking at the actual wording in the 217 CRA. And right there, it says, you know, in this section, each person will secure a trapping permit appropriate with the refuge manor on the Kenai, the Eisenbeth, the Kodiak, and the Aleutian, and the Alaska Maritime. It mentions the Kenai in the 217 CRA. That's what's just mind-blowing hmm. about it. The third thing that, and I apologize, the third thing is shreds our Statehood Compact Act. You know, we were granted fish and wildlife authority to manage on, on, all, all, lands. on all lands. That was, that, was, that was the deal being granted to come into the union. Yeah. That was the deal. So it's like I said, they took this big 55-gallon barrel and they just dumped a milk in the state of and they just burned it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're revisionists is what they are. You know, it's always been thought of as the, the federal agencies are land managers mm -hmm. and the state is the fish and wildlife managers. It's been clear for years and years. And then here in the last several years, it's kind of turned on its head. And the only way to... to to change anything is to take them to court, you know, mm. and well, Sturgeon spent a million dollars. He spent over a million dollars on navigability. Yeah. And, you know, someone should have figured that out instead yeah. of going to 
the U.S. Supreme Court to figure it out. And, and Robbie, the Sturgeon case led us into the window of how the Supreme Court is going to roll. They said Alaska is different. You have to abide mm. by the ANILCA provisions. Alaska is different. We're not New Mexico. We're not Colorado. Wherever there's federal public lands, Congress passed ANILCA in 1980, and Alaska is different. And you need to abide by those rules. Regulate. So when did the ninth? When was the Ninth Circuit decision made? Um, that was, I believe, in two twenty two. So that was recent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Several so, months ago. Yeah, several months ago. Mm-hmm. So. So, in terms of timing, it's anyone's guess when the Supreme Court says yay or nay. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we're getting piled on so bad. The state of Alaska is getting piled on so bad by the Obama administration was bad. The Biden administration's on steroids that the state of Alaska has what's called the state of Alaska defense fund that fights these federal lawsuits, whether it's the Willow oil and gas project, Ambler Road mining, proposed rules. I mean, it is Tongass, you know. Uh, national uh, forest, it's the pile on. We're the, you know, for the environmentalists, we're their environmental guilt trip. And by God, they're going to save us from ourselves up here. <laughs> <laughs> we don't think we need it. Yeah. <laughs> because- oh, too funny. Too funny. Well, look, uh, Elena and Ted, it's been a pleasure. Um, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the Senator, maybe through Elena. Uh, calling us out and saying, hey, these guys just need a little bit of help to sort of just clean the mud out of uh, what they said. And I'll certainly get on to Cody and Cody next time and just be like, come on, guys, clean up your act next. You know, I'll, I'll make sure that I've got to be, you know, when you let the cats, you know, run out and play, you never know what happens, right? Hey, it, it was, it ended up good. It, yeah. it, it brought us here to yeah. talk about. Heck yes. Well, listen, uh, the the podcast doors are always open. If there's anything that other that you want to talk about, uh, something pops up, um, you're like, I think this would be an interesting conversation. Reach out. We're always we're always up for good, hard hitting conversations. Hey, one other thing besides really appreciating you inviting us here tonight and chatting with us, I like your hat. Vortex makes good optics. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And you can see the sweat mark, the sweat band there you go. right there. So. <laughs> It's a it's a good it's a good used hat. There you go. It should be should have a sweatband on. It'd be a good hat. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, good talking to you tonight. Thanks. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.